0: Hey, this is your host, Damien Blinkensop of The Quantified Body. This is the show where we look at all of the tools and tactics, all of the cool new tech, supplements, diet, all the kind of changes you can make to your life. And we look at if they really have any big impact on our lives. And we always try to do this by looking from a quantified perspective. Now, hopefully you'll have noticed that the audio is a little bit different today. I've upgraded the audio, so I hope you can hear that and the expense that went into that and the effort uh, is going to work out for you guys to make it easier for you to listen to me and the great guests we have on the show. In today's episode, we look at the impact that genetics really has on our health and wellness. Now that we know about epigenetics, that decides what parts of our genetic blueprints are actually active and working for us. The picture isn't as clear as when we fought genetics wars, everything. We look at the potential for genetics in today's show to give us precision medicine and precision health, where we give people extremely targeted advice and care that fits their individual needs, rather than just a kind of cookie cutter approach, which as you've seen in a lot of what we covered on this show doesn't necessarily lead to the results you're looking for in many cases. Right. We've seen this in all sorts of things from metabolism to like toxins and how your body's working with those detoxification and so on and so forth. Depends on you. You are an individual. You are an N equals one experiment. So we look at the areas where genetic testing is used as actionable information most today. For instance, what drugs you should or can use, what diet may best fit you and what your biggest long-term health risks are so that you can strategically manage them and put the effort in where it's really going to count for you. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Nova. He's Chief Innovation Officer and Founding Executive at Pathway Genomics. So Pathway Genomics is an accredited clinical laboratory that offers genetic testing services in areas from screening cancer and other disease risks to personalized health and medicine. These services are quite different and broader than those of 23 and Me, which you probably know about as you listen to this show. That's the genetic testing company that most people have heard of and used, including myself. In the interview, we'll hear how the tech of Pathway Genomics and other companies is different to that of 23 and Me, and what that means. Pathway Genomics is the first company to bring an artificial intelligence and genetics-based precision medicine or health mobile app to consumers. It does this in partnership with IBM and notably IBM Watson. So that's IBM's artificial intelligence and machine learning platform. So it's been integrated with the genetic services and information from Pathway Genomics. Dr. Nova is the inventor of many of Pathway Genomics solutions. He has over 30 patents and many studies published in peer reviewed journals. And he's also a winner of the World Economic Forum Technology Pioneer Award. Finally, he's a serial entrepreneur and is on the board of advisors for IBM, which is a pretty big deal. Before we jump into today's show, I want to say a big thank you to a new iTunes review. And this one is from Poople224. He says, Great resource, tried fast, and had great result, five stars. He also says, Damien is an Olympic-level quantified selfer, and this podcast is full of great information, perspective, and techniques. I particularly enjoy the extra care he takes to ensure the show notes are more than pointers for the podcast. They are chock full of information that can be reviewed later. It's hugely helpful. I was inspired by his five-day water fast podcast and tried it myself. The experience was of great value, and I was able to validate a lot of what Damien covered with his guests in the podcast. I would not have had the information to feel confident enough to try it without Damien putting the guideposts out for the rest of us to follow. Excellent resource. I highly recommend this podcast. Thank you so much for all that great feedback. Uh, You know, you've touched on a whole bunch of stuff there that I'm working on, so I'm glad it's working for you guys. And we will be doing more of the fasting stuff because it's really an interesting area for me, because as I said in previous podcasts, it's a high lever, you know, really get a high impact for a relatively little effort once you got over the psychological. Oh, I'm going to fast for a few days. So that's something we're going to cover uh, soon. So I'm really glad you got a lot out of that. It would mean the world to me. If some of you others out there that love or hate the show, I don't mind, would rate us on iTunes. Also, it really, really helps to get word about the show out. And we've been doing better in the iTunes rankings lately. So some of you are already helping. Thank you very much for that. It's very simple. It takes you about a minute to put some feedback. Just go into the iTunes app, go to the show and hit review and submit a rating or a review. And I also love to hear the feedback because it tells me what you want more of. And I'm here for you. So let me know what you want more of. As usual, for this episode, you can go and get all the show notes with the biomarkers, tools and tactics details, and links to absolutely everything mentioned in this interview. Go to thequantifiedbody.net and you can pick out the episode there. If you want all of that in your email inbox every time a show comes out, just go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter, pop your email in there, and you'll get all of the show notes, all of the links and everything straight into your email inbox. You don't even have to bother coming to the blog anymore. I hope you really enjoy this interview with Dr. Michael Nova and it helps you to understand how genetics can be valuable to you personally. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Michael, great to have you on the show. Uh, thank you. It's my pleasure. So how did you first get into the area of genomics? And I mean, now it's personalized medicine, but was there an evolution towards there? When did this first start for you?
1: I was a research associate at the Salk Institute a while back in a Nobel Prize winner's laboratory. His name is Roger Giemann. And the lab was, um, you know, had all sorts of, it was very, a large laboratory, it had a lot of different technologies and scientists that were involved with it, as you can imagine. And one of the groups, and, and the overall function of the laboratory was to study growth factors. And so we were doing, studying everything about growth factors. We were studying how the proteins worked, tissue culture, how they interacted with each other. DNA and RNA genetics of these growth factors, you know, everything you can think of. And so... When you
0: say growth factors, what, what exactly will that be for in kind of more...
1: Things like human growth hormone and uh, thyroid-releasing hormone and corticotropin-releasing factor, all, you know, every kind of growth factor.
0: Okay, things that uh, stimulate growth in, in the human body.
1: Yeah, in one way or another. And he got the Nobel Prize for the first person to isolate TRF, which was a, which was a growth factor that was released in the hypothalamus or a signal that was released in the hypothalamus goes to the pituitary and then turns on all these kind of thyroid hormones. So that's what he got it for, and so we were just kind of peeling back the onion on a lot of different growth factors using different technologies. And so I got into genetics there, and then I started a couple of companies and took one public, and then they're kind of in the biotech area, and we've all always kind of used the genetics as part of the technologies, but it's only been recently when we started, uh, you know, Jim Plant was the founder of Pathway Genomics. We put a team together to really go after genetics as a solution for patients and using genetics and genomics, I guess, as a solution for patients and also physicians for risk assessment or to give them insight into personal issues and try to take some action against it. So I think it's been really literally within the last 10 years that the technology has been inexpensive enough that we could even try to use it. Uh, directly for
0: patients great great first of all like i think a lot of people have heard of 23andme but they haven't necessarily heard of pathway genomics so could you give us a comparison of how the technologies compare and how the service is different i know also that pathway genomics kind of evolved over time so potentially a bit of that backstory would be helpful too
1: Sure. First of all, the the major difference is we have our own laboratory, 23andMe doesn't. So we have a big laboratory staff and scientific staff and curators and all that. So we, all the tests come back to our laboratory and we do the DNA isolation and we do the reading of the mutations on different types of machines and then develop a report that goes back to the physician, which is the second kind of difference is we're only a physician's order test. We're not direct-to-consumer. So there has to be a physician in the loop or some sort of healthcare provider in the loop, either ordering the test, certainly on the ordering side, but also on the interpretation of the test. And then all our tests are covered by insurance in the United States. That's a third uh, differentiator. We sell our tests in 44 different countries.
0: So just on the insurance angle, is that, I understand it, like you're targeting a much smaller range of genetics and basically you're targeting specific arrays of things that you want to look at, like pharmacogenetics and, and other areas of the human body, whereas 23andMe is very, very broad in terms of what they look for.
1: Yeah, that that was going to be my fourth. Oh, sorry. Kinda, I, I kind of I... took the wind out of my sails on that one. <laughs> that was, that was going to be the fourth kind of big differentiator is... is we offer panel, like you said, panels of genes. So we have a, a test for fit or nutrition and exercise, which only covers those two elements and all, and then some eating behaviors and some metabolism. And then we have another test for pharmacogenetics, like you mentioned, and one that's specifically for psychiatric and another one that's specifically for pain medications. And then we have a cardiovascular test, a cardiovascular risk, which also has some diet and exercise components in it. So we have a number – we have about 12 different kind of product lines 12 different types of tests, including BRCA. We do whole genome sequencing or next-generation sequencing for the entire BRCA gene, which was the Angelina. If you know that gene, it's the one that is prevalent in certain ethnic groups for hereditary breast cancer. It's the same gene that Angelina Jolie uh, had. So we test for that as well. So we, we cover—we're the only really comprehensive genetic testing company that has uh, health and wellness products all the way to kind of hardcore next generation sequencing products for, for risk assessment for things like breast cancer. The new thing that's coming is we have our own, we have an alliance with IPM, who, who's an equity partner in us, and we're building a, a mobile application that will put, basically put a artificial intelligence supercomputer in a handset to help with managing patient information and uh, giving recommendations back directly to the user. And that will be a direct-to-consumer type of product. But at this point, we don't sell any of our genetic tests direct to consumer.
0: So I'd like to take a little step back because uh, 23andMe and, and, and you are very, really different propositions. There's also the technology and the accuracy of the test, and you have a different price point as well. So whereas uh, I think I think 23andMe for the whole thing right now, it's it's $99 per array. Yours is roughly 199 per per different uh, panels, panels you call them. So... Why is that? What's the difference in the technology and what you're delivering?
1: Well, the tech it depends on the genetic tests, and so we do Fluidigm assays for our smaller arrays, you know, up to about eighty different genes. And Twenty Three Me doesn't do that, but they basically take an Illumina chip that's got a certain number of markers on it and run that chip for their ninety nine dollar test. We also have that chip based technology, and then we also have the sequencing technology, which Twenty Three Me doesn't have. So we have. The sequencing technology is basically more expensive than the Fluidigm or TACMAN assays, which are probably the, the least expensive. And so we run every different type of genetic testing in here. But some of our reports require more than one platform. Some of them require the fluidime platform plus either maybe a, a sequencing or plus an Illumina chip. So the cost varies on the particular platform, on the particular report based, number one, on the technology that we're using. It could be more expensive to, to run that particular report. And then the way we do the reports is also different. So we have we have a physician that reviews the results. We have a dietitian that reviews the results. We have all those people that are on staff. Then a patient can, can access it at any time. And so there's a little bit more cost that's embedded into, into the test, or tests, depending on which one the clinician orders from us.
0: Great. Are your tests 100% accurate so we, we could run them one time and we'd know for sure which gene snips we have?
1: Sure. I mean, we have our own laboratory, CLIA, and it's CLIA certified, CAP certified. It's New York State certified. We're the only comprehensive genetic testing company that has a health and wellness panel that's been certified by New York State, which is very difficult to get like twenty three me can't sell in New York State. They can't sell in certain countries because direct to consumer is illegal. It's illegal in places like brazil and and Singapore, and so our accuracy since we are since we're licensed by three or four different licensing bodies, they come in here and, and inspect us all the time at least once a year on all of them. So we have to be extremely accurate
0: so I guess what I'm getting at also is like um the chipset that twenty three and me is using is pretty reliable, but it's not one hundred percent accurate. Uh, as I understand it. So in the past, when I've done tests, I've got, I've done my 23andMe and I've done some other more specific genetic tests and the answers weren't the same. And as I understood it, it was related to the technology that 23 and Me uses, which is very economical for to get a lot of data, which is interesting. So look at a variety of risks and stuff. And, but if you want to actually get kind of clinical based information where you're going to make decisions, you should run with the sequencing technology that you're using with your panels to be 100% certain, or am I kind of looking at the wrong things there?
1: No, I think you're right on one aspect or a couple aspects of what you said. I think that for things like the BRCA test, which is a very serious you know, type of genetic test, 23 me only reports on a couple variants on the BRCA mutations where we run the entire sequence. And so the doctors come to us for that particular test. They would not necessarily go to 23 me, even though the mutations that they provide and the way they do it are probably accurate, but they don't cover, you know, just by... So, just by definition, missed stuff. It doesn't mean that their technology is bad, which it isn't. It doesn't mean that the way they run the Illumina chip is not sufficient. That's not correct. For what they're reporting on, it's perfectly adequate.
0: So, everything you get reported should be correct with their technology as well, the Illumina chip.
1: Yeah, and I think at the good companies, and 23 Me is a good company. You know, the good companies like us, 23 and Me, and some of the other ones that have been astounding, I mean, we've been at this for eight years, or seven years, you know, we know what we're doing. You know, we just happen to have our own laboratory, and so we're under... A lot of different kind of governance that 23 Me isn't under.
0: Do you use uh, blood samples as well, or is it saliva samples?
1: Sure. We can use blood, saliva. Is
0: there a difference in the quality, or is it exactly the same? It doesn't really matter which one you use.
1: I don't think it may. If you can run both, both samples have different pluses and minuses, but trying to get to the same endpoint, you still have to conform to what the governing bodies and what the licensing groups want us to report on. So we don't have any choice but to make them equal in the end. So if you gave us a blood sample or a saliva sample, but the way we do each one, you know, it's, in some respects, it's harder to do saliva because there's, there's more contaminants in it and, and whatever, but then it, it's a much easier test. I mean, people don't necessarily want to get needle stick all the time.
0: Okay. I guess I'm trying to understand, like I had a blood test run for DNA sequencing and a couple of the SNPs were different compared to my 23andMe. What would be the cause of that? Or is it a mystery?
1: We can't do that necessarily. We would certainly have to report on the same SNPs in the report the same way. So I don't know. It could be a number of different things. 23 and Me again, has been around for a long time. And so I think the accuracy of their reports and what they're reporting on is really good. And I don't know what the other... It's hard for me to make a kind of black or white decision on something like that.
0: No, no, I'm not just black and white. I'm just curious if there was a technological basis or something like that. There might be. Yeah, I just figured it was a slightly different configuration of a technology.
1: But I'll give you a really good example here. That I think people don't realize that If you went and got a, a SMAC panel or a chem panel from one company like LabCorp or, or you went and got one from and it put in the same sample to Quest, there's no question that there will be a little bit of difference in what each one of these things were you know, reported on. Maybe, but just a tiny bit of difference. That doesn't mean that they're wrong, either of them. It's kind of the same way. People think that genetics is black and white and and the laboratory results are exactly 100% supposed to be the same all the time. That's not necessarily true. And then we don't know a lot more about the genetics either. So there's 25,000 different genes and we probably know about what 10,000 of them actually really do. But then they have to work with each other and all this kind of stuff. So what we're mostly concerned with is I think getting the information on the particular SNPs is not necessarily the hard part. The hard part is interpreting what it means and giving that information back to the patient.
0: So it may be just a reporting, Yes. Uh, a different reporting basis. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. Okay, so taking a little bit of a step back, what does it shift, because I know this is basically your area, Is like, what does it shift to personalized or precision medicine and health mean versus where we are at currently in the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean as a physician, we've always kind of practiced personalized medicine. When somebody comes in and they've got some condition they're worried about, we give them their medications are help based on them as a person. But now we've got a lot more tools. There's a lot more granularity in what we can actually see that might be affecting this individual or even preventing things, you know, from happening. And genetics is just one of those tools. So there's genetics, there's, you know, epigenetics, there's, you know, transcriptomics, there's all these different types of technologies now that are becoming less and less expensive, that are kind of getting weaved in to the management, if you will. Of, uh, of patients. And that's what doctors are doing, you know, basically with our reports. And so precision medicine is just another another name for, you know, personalized medicine. But I think one of the reasons there's a much bigger push for it now is that we're really seeing some major advances in cancer, chemotherapy, you know, cancer targeted therapies using genetics. We know cancer is a genetic disease, a molecular disease. We're now starting to target, you know, individual mutations in these cancers to give better results. We now uh, cl- getting a clear understanding of what Things like obesity and there's 97 genes that are related to obesity, all different metabolites. It's not necessarily going to be one size fits all. And now we just have technologies that are getting less and less expensive to kind of weave in information, you know, for the physician to make decisions on. And, that, and that's kind of where it's at right now. This is going to be an ongoing process, you know, for forever. That there's going to be some sort of genetic or omics or, or precision medicine technology that we'll be able to use to to, to really personalize individual therapies or prevention regimes or whatever you want to call it
0: yeah i, I guess one of the things about personalized is if we, if we take a comparison, uh like if you have a cough today you are given yeah the same drug no matter who you are uh but in but in the future you know and you have a panel which is pharmacokinetics, yep. ph- pharma you could look at the impact of that of the drug on you if depending on your genes drugs have different impact um so you know it's taking up to a much more personalized level than is what is Possible today by just looking at someone. You, in some cases, you maybe they'll see they're different, um, and maybe you've got some blood tests which are slightly different, but the genetics adds another layer of personalization.
1: I mean, if you, yeah, it's, this is standard knowledge in the industry that anywhere between 40 and 50% of all drugs that are prescribed fail uh, for the user, and especially the first time around. That's a huge number. Um, and if we can add some way of tailoring those drugs, maybe you take this antidepressant instead of that antidepressant, or you take this as you said, cough drug, you know, versus, you know, some other cough drug, because your liver is metabolizing it different based on your genetics, you're more likely to get a much better result. And again, that is certainly where everything is headed in this whole precision medicine uh, area.
0: Great. So I also just wanted to talk about your tests are insured are they, um, compared to uh, the other ones. And so I guess the, the extent of research done on the specific panels is, is quite deep to get to that level where and that test can now be insured.
1: Yeah, and it depends on – you know the the way Medicare does – and I'll just take Medicare as an example because they are kind of the gatekeeper for insurance coverage and our our tests are covered by Medicare. The way Medicare does it now in the United States looks at at a panel on a gene-by-gene basis. And and some genes have more clearly defined uh, outcomes and predictability than others. And so on a panel of 80 genes, they might only cover three or four of them. But that's enough to cover the entire cost of the panel, and they know. And so there's three kind of three big levels of, of gene coverage in Medicare. A, you know, genes that are covered automatically, like methylene tetrahydrofolate and and um, some of the the genes for warfarin. You know, these are covered automatically. It's an automatic payment. And since the technology on the panels, at least for us, is cheap enough, you know, to get to get under the cost of of just doing that one gene, we make whatever Medicare decides to pay us. We make enough money to cover the panel, and that goes for all the other insurance companies too. You know whether it's United Healthcare pays on certain things, Aetna pays on certain things. Some insurance companies don't pay at all on genetics. You know one way or another. So it really kind of is not just based on whether the the data is good enough, but it's also based on whether a certain insurance company uh, thinks it's relevant enough to pay for it.
0: Right. Right. And then, as you're saying, like, so only part of your panel will necessarily be covered by that. And then there's other, other things you've added, which you feel are relevant to. How do you make those decisions? What kind of level of research has to be done?
1: Yeah, we we have a very strong curation. We have, you know, I think 15 PhD level geneticists and genetic counselors, and, and myself and a number of MDs, and we basically go and grind through the literature and look for, you know, human clinical studies and, and see if the data is relevant enough uh, or there's enough human clinical studies to put the gene into, you know, the panel and then report on it. What the human clinic, We can only report on what the human clinical studies tell us. And, and so there's plenty of genes and plenty of studies out there that we never would report on because we don't think it's relative. We don't think that the data is strong enough. So to give you an example, in our healthy weight and fit test, which is our most popular test by far, we rate the science level in the test. A really good, you know, clinical, you know, uh, scientific study, let's say on thousands of patients, and it has to be replicated in the same ethnic group, show the same results, and hopefully over multiple times, then that gets four stars. And and then there's other studies that aren't quite as well validated, you know, so, but we think that there's relevance, because it might have been only done, in two or three clinical studies of 500 patients each, which isn't necessarily 1,000 patients, but it's 500. And it, it does show the same phenotype or it shows the same direction for what the genetics is, is, is reporting on. That's a pretty good study. So that gets put in the test too.
0: Great, great. It's, uh, I was going to actually ask you which was your most popular test and you've already brought it up. So in, in terms of what that test gives people, who's asking for the test and in what, con- what conditions are physicians looking for this kind of test? Is it someone who's at a recurrent like obesity problem for a very long time or what are the kind of conditions and what, what's actionable about that information for the physician once he gets it?
1: Yeah, we get, um, for that particular test, we have a lot of different types of physicians that order it. Some are Obviously, looking for weight management, weight control in their population, but we also have people that are trying to that are diabetics that are trying to use it to control their, their sugar levels or, you know, hemoglobin h one C levels. So we have a whole group of anti diabetic groups that are using the test. We have, you know, cardiovascular groups. Many cardiologists think that most cardiovascular disease can be prevented by diet and exercise changing. So we have a lot of cardiologists that order the test and try to put people on. More balanced types of diets, more personalized types of diets—not necessarily to lose weight, but to cut down lipid <clears throat> lipid levels and, and and other things that cardiologists worry about. And then we have performance groups. We have performance athletes. We have gyms like Equinox, health clubs. You know, orders their te- our tests for a lot of their their gym members to either increase performance or uh, put on muscle mass. You know, depending on what exercise. So we have. So basically, we have a lot of different types of groups, not just one. Uh, you know, type of clinician or, or group that orders a test.
0: Great. Is there an example you could walk us through of one of the, the most actionable genes in that area which, you know, people look at?
1: Well, on, on that particular test, or do you mean all our tests?
0: The most popular one, because you said this was the most popular, if there's one specific gene that people watch out for more than others.
1: Yeah, and I don't think it's one particular gene. I think it's, we, there's about 80 genes that we report on and we and we chop up the test into basically seven different sections. And one section has to do with what is the best diet for you if you're trying to lose weight. And we have four different diets, and that's based on 50 different genes. We look at 50 different genes and how they interact with each other and then and then give you a diet recommendation, whether it's low-carb, low-fat, a standard Mediterranean or balanced diet. All our diets are based on Mediterranean, but some have lower carbohydrates than others. Some have lower fats. And then we also give diet plans along with – so that's a very popular part of the test, that section. Another popular part of the test is is we have a, a behavioral section which looks at things like eating disinhibition. I can't stop eating. There's genes around. I can't. You know, when I start eating, I can't stop eating. You know, there's genes in your dopamine pathway. We look at sugars. Do I have a sweet tooth? or Do I tend to like sugars more? So this whole behavioral section is a very popular chunk of the test as well. And then we have a standard metabolism section. We look at things like. Do you have a tendency to have increased insulin? Do you have a tendency to have increased lipid levels? You know, those, you know, those type of genes. And there's multiple genes in, the, in that section, you know, 20 or 30 genes in that section. So that's also kind of a popular part of the test.
0: Right, right. One of the interesting scenarios, I think, is like the, the diet, the high fat versus the, the low carb and the low fat. Because um, a lot of the dietary recommendations today are, it's basically which, which crowd do you want to go with? Um I'm with the low carb crowd, I'm with the high fat crowd, the high protein. Some of the genes can be pretty significant in that area like the a gene. yep um could you talk a little bit about that and how that influences whether you know your diet that like fats are gonna be like good for you in a, in a or not like basically they're gonna be problematic
1: yeah let's go back and look at diets in general. I think it's very difficult um it, most people if they if they got on a diet and 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 it was less calories than they usually intake, and they stayed on that diet for years, they would probably lose weight. But it's very difficult to get people to do that <laughs> for a number of reasons. And so what we try to do is we try to look at particular genetics around fat metabolism, and APO is one of them, and PPRA gamma, and even FTO, and some of these other genes, and how you not only process fats, but also how you taste things. You know, You, you have bitter taste receptors, that we look at, you know, people don't eat things that they don't like. So we try to tailor the diet kind of based on a number of these kind of big subsets. Whether it's how you metabolize lipids, and people that have two copies of the FTO gene, there is no question that they have trouble metabolizing fats and should be on a lower carbohydrate diet than somebody that doesn't have those. And they tend that gene's been very well characterized and and is a known obesogenic gene along with MCR4. If you put those two together, people that have those two genes tend to be about 10 pounds overweight than people that don't have them. So we kind of take that information and we go back and we design a diet that's based around not only what your metabolism is but also what you potentially would like to eat and make it a diet that isn't too rigorous, uh, that you'll never stay on, and then try to give you direct diet plans, you know, basically what to eat almost on a literally on a daily basis and breakfast, lunch and dinner, this is what you should eat. And then we have diet specialists and nutritionists and exercise physiologists, all this other stuff that if you really need help with that kind of stuff, we have ways to get you that as well. So it's kind of a more compre- – I guess what I'm getting at is you do, we don't like to look at genetics in a vacuum. It's one part of a big puzzle and the more pieces of the puzzle we can put together, the more success – we have for, the personal, for personalizing things for the user, and that seems to really work. I mean, we have over, I think, 20,000 physicians in the U.S. that are, that are ordering our tests, and uh, they keep ordering it over and over again, and along with our diet plans and, and whatever information that we give them, and they've shown us the results themselves speak for themselves. You know, we, they, They've shown that what they're getting out of it for their patients is really working.
0: So just go back to a distinction you made was uh, that you're not doing genetics, you're, you're more doing genomics, right, the interaction of the, all of the genes together. Is that what you mean by um, you were saying, saying that it's?
1: I guess I, that's a little bit of a, a slicing that onion really thin.
0: <laughs> the, the well, Yeah. So, so was the um, what is the approach? You are saying that it's not a good idea to look at a specific just just one specific gene on its own, but it's better.
1: Yeah, there's very few things that are like one gene, and then you have something bad happen. I mean, uh-huh. and even then, you know, even for things like BRCA, it's still only a relative statistic. It's even if you, even if you have BRCA and you're Ashkenazi Jewish and have the mutations that are relevant, there's still only a 80% probability that you'd end up having breast So that means there's 20% you wouldn't have breast cancer. So it's very few things are kind of one gene, one bad outcome, fortunately. Um, it's usually a multiple genes. And again, we talked about obesity. There's at least 80, 90 different genes that have something to do with making somebody obese. And how do they all work together? That's the goal, whole nuggets in all, the, all this business is how to figure out how things work together.
0: The BRCA gene is interesting because the pretty extreme decisions, or you could say it's very rational decisions, but a lot of people see it as an extreme decision that um, Angelina Jolly has taken and it's been in the press and everything. So one factor into that is that there's genetics versus epigenetics and how do we approach genetics in practice when there's potential for some epigenetic influence and where the gene's not actually turned on or off, right? You don't know where which one it is. Is it turned on? Is it turned off? Angelina Jolie's BRCA genes were they turned on, and therefore they did represent the risk. So, just based on what you just said there, you said there was an eighty percent chance. I don't know if that was a real statistic with a certain BRCA gene, but would it be in that kind of order that they were looking at BRCA? If you took your BRCA panel, even not looking at the epigenetic influence, is there an eighty percent chance that that risk really exists without taking into account the epigenetic influences?
1: correct and remember Broca was first isolated in the Ashkenazi Jewish population that's where it's most relevant and Angela Jolie had family members who had breast cancer so her decision to have surgery was based not only just that she was double Brock she was BRCA1 and 2 positive but also the fact that her mother i think died of breast cancer and she was Ash- and she's half Ashkenazi Jewish so there was a number of factors that went into her decision to have surgery not only to have her her memories resected but also to have her ovaries taken out. I think she went down that path as well because there's an increased risk, you know, potentially for ovarian cancer, which is a, still a very serious disease. So you have to take kind of all the information in, in total. If there was no breast cancer in her family and she wasn't Ashkenazi Jewish or part Ashkenazi Jewish, then she might there might be a reason to not potentially go down that path. But that's up to her and her clinician to kind of work that out. That's why we don't think it's a test like that which is a, a very serious test, which should ever be direct to consumer. That for us is something that really needs some guidance, along with trying to make decisions about that.
0: Right, right, excellent. So I think the epigenetics area. How do you approach working with your physicians and advising them? Do you ask them to look at factors like? Is you're talking about hereditary? What what are your situation? Your your parents, uh, your grandparents. Other things you can look at, like in conjunction with some of your tests. So in order to capture the epigenetics, so if, you know, wherever something's actually taking place or not, do you say, oh, you should run these blood tests if you get these genes and thus you could, like, make a better decision based on that? Or do you tend to keep it to the genetics themselves?
1: We tend to keep it to the genetics at this point because epigenetics is fairly new. There's not enough data in a lot of, although I totally believe in it, there's not enough data in a lot of respects for us to kind of weave that in to the process of, You've got this gene, but it's not turned off yet. I mean, we can do that from a technology standpoint. We can do it, but there's not enough clinical data to make really informed decisions around that.
0: Right. I was talking more, I mean, at this point, as you say, epigenetics is relatively new. It's probably quite expensive at this point for you to be kind of integrating that kind of service.
1: Those kind of expression assays, and although there are, Illumina has a methylone chip, but I don't think it's a clinical grade thing. It's definitely more expensive than uh, the genetic.
0: So I was thinking more about metabolites and lipids and, and things like that. So, if, for example, we we're talking about the OPPO, right? So if your cholesterol markers are off, that would be an indicator that that gene is switched on, correct?
1: Or, yeah, or, or panels of gene. I mean, something is definitely not working correctly. Or you've got something in your diet also that's not the correct diet. Maybe you're eating too much of X. You should be eating more of Y. So there's, a num- again, a number of different factors Genetics, epigenetics, proteomics, metabolomics, it just gives you the metabolomics and the proteomics and looking at lipopanels, those give you a snapshot, kind of an immediate time of day, this is what your lipid levels showed. What genetics does is give you a tendency towards where potentially the lipid levels in the long run will go if you don't take certain actions doing certain
0: things. Yeah, it does. I think the the area of epigenetics is uh, potentially very confusing to people because there is this aspect of genes potentially staying switched off. Say, for instance, like exercise is an important mechanism for turning off. I'm not saying this is true, but the APRO gene, right?
1: Well, there's been data that's shown that the FTO gene for obesity can be mitigated with certain exercise and diet regimes. Those are known facts. There's starting to be really hardcore data around using the environment. And epigenetics is all about environment, how you, what you do in your environment to turn genes on and off. And there is data around that, so uh, that would be one example of something that, in the near future, we might end up reporting on. You can change how genes are expressed by by something in the environment.
0: Right. I'm sure at this stage, it's just kind of like a. a- uh, discussion level with you you and colleagues and other people you know but how far out do you think these kind of things are like being able to take the next step and, and understanding the epigenetic aspect of it and making decisions based on that as well as just the genetics
1: epigenetics in in some respects is even uh, more complicated than the genetics because there's so many different things that can turn genes on and off there's Methylation patterns. There's acetylation patterns. There's phosphorylation patterns, which means molecules that actually bind to DNA or histones or whatever and modify things to turn genes on and off. And then there's all the microRNAs. There's thousands of different microRNAs, the junk matter in DNA that will turn genes on and off if they're expressed or not. So it's extraordinarily complicated.
0: <laughs> yeah. IBM is an equity partner in Pathway Genomics. Yes. Uh, right. So I, want, I wanted to talk about hyperparameter Panorama later, but I think it's also kind of relevant to what we're discussing right now. It being so complex and everything. Are you looking at bioinformatics and, and things like that potentially as future?
1: See, that's what computers are really good at. They're good at taking taking noise, basically, whereas we would we look at it and not come up with any pattern. A computer is really good at making patterns out of things. They're not necessarily sentient, but they're really good at taking databases and huge amounts of information and then telling you that these two things are you know linked together. That's what the information is, and so that's basically what we've what we're starting to build with IBM. We have a very strong bioinformatics group and engineering group, and this is an artificial intelligence. And so that that basically Watts, it's the Watson artificial intelligence that can play chess and it was on Jeopardy, the show on, in the United States, uh, and so we have to train it. We like to say it's a little bit like a dog. You know, you have to train you train the dog by Lobbing in a question and then seeing what answer you get back and then seeing if it's relevant and, and 99% of the time to start with, it's not relevant. Then you have to tell it why it's no, and then you should go back and it should be this instead of that. And so it's a huge process to train, uh, especially around healthcare because there's nothing that's more data uh, dense than healthcare data. And it's not just genetic data we're interested in. We're interested in your electronic health record, your lab results, your wearables, you know, your Fitbit data and all that other kind of stuff. And so we want to take all that information And then compare it to the standard of care, which is kind of what's going to be in the Watson engine, and then give you back a recommendation that's really personalized. So if you asked a question like, I've got a nosebleed, uh, if you have our mobile app, Panorama, you ask the question, I've got a nosebleed, what should I do? You would get a different answer potentially than I would because I've scanned all this information about you and compared it to what is the the standard of care – and since you're a little bit different in this gene and you've had your latest lab result is a little bit different over there and maybe you went for a run and fell on your face, there's all those bits of information that are really important in order to give you a decision or some sort of recommendation about what to do.
0: Right. So, that, I mean, that sounds incredibly ambitious. Sure. Um, and, and so, so, but you are going to release something uh, relatively soon, aren't you? So what will that be when it comes out?
1: It'll be a beta. We'll have a public beta sometime September, October timeframe this year. We're going through trials right now and they out with the alpha version. And it's a very, it's like you said, it's a very complicated problem because it deals with a lot of, number one, it deals with a lot of different types of data and then getting that data so Watson can understand it, which is a whole engineering task on its own, and then getting the right information into Watson or IBM, you know, the supercomputer, the artificial intelligence and the getting the right and curated information in there. So, so, it, so it has kind of the state of the art in what people are thinking in terms of healthcare. So you're right. It's it's extremely ambitious, and uh, we're really really excited about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. It'll be fun to use it uh, when it comes out. Is it going to be uh, sold for iTunes or something, or how's it going to work? Yeah,
1: yeah, it will go through the iStore and you know all that and whatever Android is. And
0: okay, great. One of the other things uh, we touched on that I wanted to get a bit deeper into because I, f- I think a lot of people don't don't realize how very this is is pharmacogenomics. So um, you have several panels. It's quite extensive the number of panels. it seems under that area. So could you talk a little bit about, because you have like mental health areas and and other areas. So is it extremely varied, the impact a drug can have on each and every person? Is this very common that the drugs have very differing impacts per person?
1: So I'll start with the panel. We have a number of, we have two or three different panels of pharmacology. One is what you mentioned. It's a mental health panel that has things like antidepressants, antipsychotics, mood elevators, 30 or 40 different drugs and they each are metabolized in your liver a little bit differently. One drug is metabolized differently than another drug. And we look at those mutations in your liver enzymes that are called cytochromes. And then there's also transport protein that have uh variants in the in how the the drug is transported from the blood into the cells. You know, there's a couple of drugs in there that that have different transport kinetics. And then there's some of them also that have renal that get excreted by your kidneys and they have a little bit different kinetics and so We put that whole panel together on mental health based on a lot of this, you know, kind of genetic information or the best that we could find. And so doctors use it to try and start somebody out on a drug rather than kind of guessing what this person should have, or they'll change a drug based on the genetics because they'll understand why this potential drug isn't necessarily working. And then we have other panels. We have a pain panel, which kind of does the same thing, but around pain medications, the codeines, oxycodone, you know, morphine, uh, tramadol, things like that, they get metabolized differently.
0: So when you say metabolized, it means processed by the liver?
1: Yeah, processed by the liver. And, and there's also transporters and ways that they, they, they get uh, – there's uptake and excretion that's a little bit different for some of these drugs. Again, we use that information on a broad panel of different genes to kind of tailor what potentially would be better for somebody than, than something else. And that kind of data is getting better. The thing, good thing about genetics in general is the data just gets better and better. It doesn't get worse, you know. It's not like cold fusion. It's not going to go away. It's just going to be integrated more and more into the practice and pharmacogenetics. And obviously, drug metabolism is a huge deal. And I give you a good example in the Asian population. There's a drug called carbamazepine, and it's used as an anticonvulsant. And there are genes evolved around metabolism of carbamazepine that, if you have these particular genes you will probably have a very high likelihood of going into Stevens-Johnson syndrome if you take carbamazepine and that's a very serious disease.
0: Stevens-Johnson syndrome, could you just describe the uh, effects of that because I, I don't think it's very common but it's pretty horrific, right?
1: Yeah, it's but it's an allergic reaction basically, an immune reaction against, you know, this particular drug and you basically can end up dying from it and going into anaphylactic shock and your skin starts to slough off. It's a really nasty way to go if, if you want to call it that way. So, uh, But again, it's not very common, but it is common more in, the, in Asians. And so screening for carbamazepine is like 100% done in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, places like that they're still using the drug, you know, as part of it, uh, as an anticonvulsant re- regime. So they won't put anybody on it if that, if that person comes up with that particular variant. So that's a really good example of how using a genetic test will really literally dial out a drug or dial in a drug based on your genetics.
0: Right, right. Currently today, it's, it's a little bit of a trial and error process. If you see a physician, even with antibiotics sometimes, uh, unless you've, you've had tests done, it, it's trial and error. We're working hopefully towards a place where there won't be any of that Trial and error, it will kind of be eliminated over time. Um, but by these, these kinds of tests, with the caveat that epigenetics sometimes will have some, some influence. So it's not 100% fallible. In terms of the pharmacogenomics, there's still some potential that, you know, basically the, it says this drug's better than, than this one for you. No, it's not 100% fallible, correct?
1: No, I mean, again, what we try to do in the genetics business is, is report on what the literature tells us, right? Period. That's the bottom line, and and is that result valid? So, and we know in pharmacogenics that across all drugs, forty to fifty percent of them fail when they're first given. So that's that's a huge problem. And so, dialing in the right drug, yeah. even though it might not be one hundred percent correct, although the Stevens Johnson issue with this particular gene and carbamazepine is almost one hundred percent. You know, so there's nobody in his right mind that if if they knew that that patient had those particular genes, would put somebody on carbamazepine because that's one of those issues that is almost really one gene, one effect. You just don't do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and then when the risk is so high, what other high-risk ones are there? Is it warfarin is, it, is a big one?
1: Yeah, warfarin potentially could be a big one from a couple of reasons. A dosing of warfarin, to begin with, is a little bit difficult. You have to have really kind of strong expertise in doing that. And the way it's done is it done, it's done over a period of time, to kind of figure out what your INR is and how you're metabolizing, and then getting the right dose. Warfarin is a serious compound. I mean, you don't want to mess around with it. It's basically rat poison, and uh, you know it's an anticoagul- a very serious anticoagulant. So, and, and as are some of the other ones like Plavix. But if you could figure out initially which dose of warfarin is better for that individual based on his genetics, that's a good thing. And then warfarin tends to be used when a problem arises like a, you know, potentially a stent or you've got some sort of other issue that needs anticoagulation. So you need to put them on warfarin immediately. So I think that having a point of care warfarin test for pharmacogenetics is probably the way that that is going to go, you know, and nobody wants to, st- you know, sit around and wait for a day, you know, for some sort of genetic test to come back before they put them on a drug like warfarin. If they need it immediately, you know, they've got an embolic stroke or something like that. So you're just going to, you're going to do it anyway.
0: Right. That kind of information is helpful to have already pre-done. This is why it's preempting the need for genetic data on you. Like in in some cases, it's worthwhile doing, right? Cancer.
1: Yeah. And then the holy grail, you know, will be uh, a certain period of time. It'll be $500 or $1,000 to get a whole genome sequence of all all your genes, all your DNA. And then everybody gets it done. Insurance will probably pay for it. And it just gets put in your record at birth. (laughs) That's probably where it's going to. If you look at the, you know, the long-term goal of getting everybody genetically tested, that's probably where it's going to end up. And then you will just pull down the information when you need it. It's already in your file. It's in your electronic health record. Does this patient respond to carbamazepine? Does he respond badly to warfarin? You'll just know that you know because you'll just drop down the information electronically.
0: Great, great. Thanks for that. One other thing you mentioned, which I'm sure is going to be interesting to some people, is the athletics aspect and the performance there. Have you got any specific examples of genes you're looking at and, and reporting that are useful for training or, or changing and optimizing there?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of genetics or, or a significant amount of genetics on VO2 max. On um, Some people have a tendency to have a higher VO2 max than other people based on their genetics. So how do you use that information in order to tailor your workouts? Maybe you're one of these people that has a low VO2 max. You know, maybe you need to do more X exercise than somebody that has a tendency to have a higher VO2 max. So there's genes around that. There's genes around power and endurance. Some people tend to be more power people, uh, which means that they respond better to power athletics or power sports than people that are endurance runners. Um, there's some pretty famous genes uh, in that kind of power area. Actin is one of them and ACE and some other genes. And then there's genes around exercise and insulin response, you know, exercise and sugar response. And so our panel kind of covers a lot of these and gives you kind of a broad snapshot of what potentially would be a better type of exercise for you than somebody else.
0: All right. So the type of suggestions would be like resistance training versus endurance aerobics cardiovascular kind of work these kind of recommendations
1: yeah and then a a sophisticated personal coach will use like an equinox a personal coach uses that information to kind of tailor what types of exercise regimes the the along with their diet what type of exercise regimes potentially would be better and you get more response around than, than something else
0: great great thank you where would you recommend someone look to learn more about personalized genomics. Are there specific books or presentations on the subject that, you know, are good resources to learn more about this?
1: Yeah. I think we have a, a couple of them on our website, you know, pathway.com. There's a lot of them out there. I mean, the, the University of Utah has a very comprehensive uh, genetics kind of database. If you really want to get down to hardcore genetics, there's genetics. You know, all the genes are listed in, in certain databases, like GeneMed and NIH has a database of all the genetics and all the genes, all the variants, and what they mean—you can Google in genetics textbook, and there'll be fifty of them that come up. <laughs> uh, hospital groups like the Mayo Clinic has a really good genetics site. You know, Harvard's got a good one. Stanford's got a good UCSF. They've all got really good uh, information on those websites about genetics.
0: Great, great, great! Thanks. How can people best connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Are you on Twitter, or uh, are you active anywhere else?
1: Yeah, people lob in stuff to me all the time. Uh, I think you have my email, usually the best way to get a hold of me, or Twitter. And we have a Twitter account from Pathway Genomics. So a lot of, a lot of information gets disseminated through the usual, uh, the usual media outlets.
0: All right, great, great. And uh, is there anyone besides yourself you would recommend to learn more about this for personalized approaches, whether it be pharmacogenomics or anything else?
1: There's a lot of academic groups. Every major university has some, somebody that's that's doing it. I could certainly give you a list of...
0: Sounds pretty broad. I don't know if there's anyone kind of more in the, uh, the popular space potentially working with big companies like IBM or, I don't know, doing s- some similar work, potentially different in slightly different areas to you that would be of interest.
1: One person that's been kind of pounding the genetics uh, drum bag uh, for a long time has been Eric Topol. You're probably familiar with him, but he's kind of one of the leaders in uh, personalized and putting the consumer in charge of his own healthcare, And that's basically what we're trying to do here you know, from a number of different angles.
0: Great, great, excellent. A couple of questions now, just on your own personal approach and kind of view of body data, what kind of things have you had tracked for yourself, you know, whether it's genes or other biomarkers or activity, like your fitness activity trackers, what kind of things do you track on your own biology?
1: Well, I've had my genome completely sequenced, um, so I know as much about my own genome as probably is available, <laughs> So in that respect, I know what's good for me, and then I've certainly changed around my diet a little bit, and and the types of exercise that I do based on what my genetics have shown me. I do wear one of these Fitbit tracking gadgets, if you're and there's a lot of them. There's a lot of different types, and then uh, and then I'm going to for sure use Panorama, you know, this this healthcare app that we're going to come out with because it'll be integrated into your cell phone, and you know, it'll basically tell you. You type in what should I do for my exercise today, and it'll tell you based on your genetics or, or lab result xyz you should do this you know you've already done a thousand steps you should you can do this now you can eat this you know there's a store around the corner D- you can buy it there there's a whole bunch of different parameters that that I think will be very very useful in terms of tracking where you won't know it's really happening you know I think that's another thing that, that users will, will like about the panorama is that there's not going to be a lot of input you don't have to do a, a food log you don't have to do And users don't want to do that kind of thing. You know, we live in a (laughs) 140-character world.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a a burden to collecting information.
1: There's a total burden. And we're trying to... That's a very good word to use. There's a total burden, and we're trying to make it very easy for for it to be done automatically. So you feel like you almost have a guardian angel on your shoulder in some respects.
0: Are you integrating it with existing sources of information, or are you just making the app very easy to integrate? A bit like Evernote, which, you know, you can upload all sorts of things into it
1: yeah it'll be both you'll be able to take what you want or we'll go out and find it we'll go get your fitbit data we'll go get your electronic health record we'll go get you know whatever lab result provided we get permission from you to do it obviously you know there's consent that's going to be involved in this whole thing and uh, we'll try and make that like you said that burden really or that bar really low we'll make it very easy for you to get a very very inexpensive genetic test through the application.
0: So you'll be able to buy, buy a pathway a genetic test through the app and it will get integrated automatically? Or
1: Yeah, or anybody else's genetic test, whether you've got 23 ME's, we'll integrate that information in there.
0: Great, great. Okay, last question. Um, always ask this everyone. What would be your number one recommendation to someone trying to use some data, any kind of data to make better decisions about their health?
1: Knowledge when it comes to preventing things from happening and to changing your behavior when it's based on real science, is a very powerful thing. And we hear that all the time. Oh, that's why I didn't like X or Y. Now I know it's not my, all my fault. Now I can change it and, and stick to some potential diet regime with a lot more confidence and I'm going to get a better outcome. So for us, knowledge is power in, in, in order to change behavior. And that's the name of the game for a lot of this, is trying to change your behavior. Because you have a lot of power to, to be able to do that giving the consumer more information about themselves is a very powerful thing
0: right right it's like once someone understands something more clearly it gives them a more clarity gives them kind of more confidence it makes it a lot easier to keep that behavior on board right right well michael thank you so much for your time today I really enjoyed the chat yeah my pleasure to get more of the quantified body subscribe on itunes or go to the website for that's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot n e t. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook we are at facebook.com forward slash quantified body podcast. If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at Damien at the quantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at body.net Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.